Welcome to A Pot of On a Hill. I'm Mr. Vosliatis. I'm Mr. Copeland. Today we're doing period 4-3 notes, Society, Culture, and Reform, 1820 to 1860, also known as the Antebellum Period. Here we go. Okay, so last audio lecture, we talked about how the War of 1812 made an impact on our political and economic institutions. Today, we're going to talk about how it affected our national ethos. We're starting to become a little less British and a little bit more American. And there's going to be two main ideologies that will help shape this character. One will be secular. One will be religious. The large uh, influx or rise in patriotism and nationalism at the conclusion of that war played a major role in this. And often... You know, you saw how the Federalists were painted at the end of this uh, right. previous period was, yes. oh, you just want to go back to uh, the, uh, be Britain again. Right. You know what I mean? Oh, you're begging for the king to take you back. So a way to undercut somebody politically was to make them seem more British and less American. Right. So this idea of who we are as a country starts to emerge in a large part because finally we are an I independent country, not just politically, but also in our minds. And that played a major role into the culture and the way in which our society changes in these next 50 years. So you mentioned religion, you mentioned uh, secularism. It's two major factors in almost each and every one of Americans' lives. It's either one or the other that drives their thinking. And one event that really kind of encapsulates the minds of the masses, and it's really going to help inform how they think and how they act with each other, is going to be an era known as the Second Great Awakening. It's going to start between 1790 and last all the way as far as 1850s. The reason why we call it the Second Great Awakening is because it's very much like the First Great Awakening that we discussed before in the 1730s and 40s. It will be a religious revival in which we'll kind of make a tremendous impact on our society. Yeah, and the time period of our uh, revolution and thereafter was greatly influenced by the Enlightenment. And because of this, the belief in human reason and people sitting at a table saying we can solve problems going forward in our society, there starts to be efforts to kind of improve or maybe even reject the old way of doing things in terms of the Calvinistic and Puritanical beliefs, such as predestination and the concept of original sin influencing every single person's life. So you start to see a more liberal or progressive church begin to rise, even in the Northeast. And these revivals start uh, specifically here in New York. And this movement really doesn't have a leader per se. It is very much a grassroots organization and it will start to kind of like peak in, in various aspects or regions in our country. And it's going to reach a revivalism in New York. There's going to be a Presbyterian minister uh, in 1823 by the man of Charles J. Finney. And he's going to deliver emotionally driven sermons that will prompt thousands to publicly declare their revived faith. This is very similar to what we see with George Whitfield as well as Jonathan Edwards a century before. He's going to preach everyone can be saved through faith and hard work. These ideas are going to strongly appeal to a rising, burgeoning middle and working class. Yeah, the effort to reach the masses in terms of you are not rejected for what you were or who you are. One bad action does not, you know, mean that you should never be part of this church. Right. You can bring back. And, and bringing these people back into this revival is a huge part of this. And this revivalism even spread to the South. You have Baptists and Methodists, which are two of the largest uh, denominations of Protestants today in our country. Right. But it starts here during this revival period. So most of the Southerners who had never, ever been part of a church before, remember the, the organization of a church and a society and a uh, community was really most of the Northeast. So the Southerners being so spread out made it more difficult for them. But by 1850, 
Baptists and Methodists had taken over as the largest Protestant denominations in our country. But they really reached out to the frontiersmen and people who had never been associated before. In a way, because there's no access to government or any other type of political institutions, the churches themselves served as de facto uh, political institutions. Um, And actually, eventually, the frontier is not only going to be informed by church communities, but it's also going to start a new type of religion, and we call this Mormonism. It's going to also be known as the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. It will be founded by a man named Joseph Smith in 1830. According to uh, Joseph Smith, he was going to be delivered a Book of Mormon, and it will trace back all the way to a link between the Native Americans and the lost tribe of Israel. Yes, he apparently took the Book of Mormon out of the his backyard <laughs> and then dug it up out of the dirt and connecting America to um, you know, the tribes of Israel and therefore Jesus right. is the idea of Mormonism. So uh, this was seemed to be much more radical and it was so outside the box of tr- typical mainstream Christianity that they were really persecuted to a large extent and they were forced to retreat to what now is Utah. And that is where they were able to live in peace. But, um, you know, Joseph Smith, their founder, was, I believe, uh, executed uh, because of his beliefs. And and this is important to mention because this is going to be the first, like, American religion where the other religions have, like, some sort of uh, lineage or they can trace themselves back to the old world. Mm-hmm. We're beginning to see a very much new world, a blending of the things and experiences that they're seeing on the frontier, and it's blending with Judeo-Christian values. And although it's not as popular as Mr. Copeland has said, it is something that historians have noted um, as the beginning of a change in American character. So whenever we talk about any movement, it's always important to recognize the causes and the effects of these movements. And so the Great Awakening here, the second of it, um, really caused new divisions within our society. So you have the old and the new. And you see this throughout this time period. You have old and new immigrants. You have old and new religious sects are um, being classified as you're either part of the old guard of the Puritans and the uh, Calvinist thought. And then now these new religions are emerging, which helps create a society that starts to be more separated. So you have um, different groups. These revivals are trying to meet the middle and working class. And some of the old religion was more likely to be part of the upper or established classes. Um, This is what really led to a series of reform movements later on because most of these people that are part of these new uh, religious ideas and and, um, denominations, they believe that combination of their personal beliefs in religion and the idea of society can improve itself lead to social reform movements like the anti-slavery movement, like women's rights movements, which we will talk about going forward. The second main ideology will be more secular, and it's not to say that it's completely detached and separate from the Second Great Awakening or the evangelical movement that we're beginning to see. It can also work in tandem, but not everyone has a certain level of dedication that everyone out in the frontier or the general masses have. For some of the intellectuals, they're really going to be inspired by a movement called transcendentalism. It's going to start in basically uh, Europe, and it's going to be basically um, founded under the umbrella of romanticism. It's going to be a cultural shift away from balance, um, order, and reason. Again, these are things that are found from the Enlightenment period to intuition, feeling, individual acts of heroism, and the study of nature. Um, So romanticism in Europe is going to have a little bit of its unique flavor, and we're going to call that form of romanticism transcendentalism. And it's going to be mostly expressed by a small group of New England thinkers called transcendentalists. So one of the major uh, ideals of this group was to question the doctrines of established society. Um, whether it be the church, whether it be business practices of the merchant class, like don't just accept things for the way they are. We can improve. So similar to the Enlightenment, um, but the idea that you need to go with your gut feeling. Right. You, you you should know, you should have a sense of when something is right or wrong. Yeah. That is the core of their humanity. Not necessarily anything to right. do with morality and religion. They're just saying, People know what's right and wrong, and you should be able to figure this out. If the Enlightenment was about using your head to solve world problems, then the transcendentalist area era of time was to use your heart to solve problems. Yeah, and you know, uh, we talked about the Enlightenment. Truth and inspiration is derived from discovering one's inner self. Who are you? 
That's what this movement was all about. Right. Find out who you are as an individual. What are you passionate about? Um, what makes you tick? That is something that then you can take in terms of your career or your uh, mission or your uh, whatever um, crusade you're willing to take. And it totally correlates with Americans' um, general stereotype of being an individual and the sense of individuality that yeah. we discussed in class before. Yeah. And Andrew Jackson, we mentioned briefly, but he was known right. as that rugged individual right. to connect with these people, right. to connect with the groups of people on the frontier and say, hey, I made it because I did this myself. I did it by taking these risks, and that's why I should be successful. This individualism will find itself in this intellectual movement. It's also going to um, be headed by a few key figures, one of which was a man named Ralph Waldo Emerson, uh, some of you which probably have, ever heard, uh, have heard of before in uh, Miss Barbara's American Lit class. Yes, definitely. Um, and he's going to write several essays and actually speak a lot uh, that will invoke these individualistic, nationalistic spirit of America uh, by urging them not to imitate Europeans. So he's not only going to believe in what is distinctly American, but he's going to try to proliferate these ideas beyond his audience. One of Ralph Waldo Emerson's most uh, famous quotes speaks to that exact sentiment where he says, do not go where the path may lead, go instead where there is no path and leave a trail. So if that doesn't speak to the individual mindset or individualistic mindset of Americans in this time period, I don't think anything does. And that's why that's so important to reference not just Emerson, but also Thoreau, who comes up in this next section of the notes. Um, because he also wanted to connect with nature. It was not just hitting the books that was going to help you f solve every answer. It was that to find who you truly were, you needed to spend time interacting with uh, God's creation, which was nature itself. So the silence and tranquility would lead him to answers in his life. He even spent two years in uh, a cabin in the woods to try and reflect on things, where he wrote a book called Walden. Um, but his most famous work is definitely his essay on civil disobedience, because this established himself as an early advocate of nonviolent protest. And that is crucial to recognize the idea of social reform movements for the next 150 years in our country. He's going to encourage people to listen to their conscience. Again, a very internal, intuitive uh, ideology, not so much of a heady experience. And disobey unjust laws of society and accept the punishment. Obviously, these writings uh, will inspire future leaders, such as Mohandas Gandhi, as well as Martin Luther King Jr. Him, like Emerson, are both going to be critics of the institution of slavery. They believe that if we need to progress America, we need to make us better. Uh, the biggest way to do that is to challenge some of the problems in our time. Their pro the biggest problem in their time, they believed, was slavery. So he's going to apply some of these principles to kind of advocating uh, for the abolition of slavery later on. And why his uh, thoughts on this were so important was because many people who would be critical of these uh, issues, like slavery and others, um, they'd be saying, well, you're breaking the law. The right. law says this, right. the law says that. And he meant to the core of who we are. Right. You know when something is wrong. Right. And that's what we referenced before. And to disobey unjust laws, it's each and right. every one of our, that's our role in a society as a citizen to recognize what is a just law and what is not. To Henry David Thoreau, there is, there is sometimes a difference between state law and moral law. Mm -hmm. And he just really wants people to kind of follow their internal moral compass. And if those two spheres uh, are not intertwined, that's when you should break that law. In fact, he's going to actually be jailed for tax, uh, for, for neglecting to pay his taxes during the Mexican War because he's not going to want to finance that um, and to expand the institution of slavery. Mm. So um, as we move along, we also have this... Um, experience in our country known as communal experiments, right. which was not as wide scale as the presence of the other movements that we've talked about thus far. But it's important to note that there's a group of people that come out of this movement of transcendentalism that really think, well, we can solve all of our issues right. if we all just create a community where we all work together to solve all the problems. And in many ways, it was reformers to experiment this concept of creating a utopia. Uh, keep in mind that th these group of uh, in, uh, people, the transcendentalists, are escaping the ills of industrialization, poor sanitation, uh, urbanization, uh, loss of jobs. So they really believed if we returned back to an agrarian lifestyle that um, Americans would be a lot happier. Yeah, simplification would bring you know, uh, success and happiness. However, many of these experiments failed, um, but it does show improve the amount of idealism that will be developing within the American populace. This, of course, you can make a lot of um, connections to the hippie movement that we'll later see in the 1960s. 
Uh, two examples are the Brook Farm, which is a group of transcendentalists that live together in a community to achieve uh, a blend of intellectual and manual labor. That means they're kind of like they're going to work like a bunch of monks. They're going to do all the chores together. They're going to eat together. Uh, they're going to just kind of divvy up everything uh, equally among themselves. And the Shakers are another important group, which basically almost 6,000 members all across the country in the 1840s. And their basic concept was we can hold property in common. common. Uh, the, the idea of property ownership is not permitted in their territory, in their com communal experience. And they emphasize simplistic living. For those, that was their goal. For those of you who are like having alarm bells ring in your heads and you're thinking this is an idea of socialism, you have to understand that the concept of socialism is going to be emerging during this time, but it's going to be emerging by a man named Karl Marx all the way in Germany. And uh, there is no Stalin, there is no Mao, there is no Castro, there are no uh, dictatorial governments that will use socialist rhetoric to achieve their ends. So at this time, it's a very experimental uh, phase, and it was m mostly uh, meant to kind of escape, again, the ills of industrialization. So these people are not uh, communists by any stretch of the imagination, uh, but they are beginning to test things that are very similar to yeah, this. What these this movements have in common is right. the effort to try and solve problems that right. we have in society. Right. Right. And people try different things. So right. um, as we move along, we have to look at the art. Uh, we're talking about society, right? We're talking about the society uh, emerging, this identity of what it means to be America. And at the same time, we also have the emphasis of the common man in politics during this time period, right? So the arts start to reflect that. And when you look at art, architecture, literature, whatever it may be, it's always a sign of the times. So Jackson is inspiring artists to rather than focus on the leaders of our society right. and the Por oiled portraits, yeah, going back and painting things of George Washington and the mes message of the revolution or all these enlightenment ideas, the ideas for the first time start to focus on ordinary people. Instead of looking up, let's look next to each, us, uh, each other. Let's look and see, wow, that's simple, that man fishing right there, that's worth painting. Or the idea of a family walking in a park you know, simple popular scenes, riding in riverboats, the concept of voting on election day starts, that people paint that, Ca just carrying out domestic chores. There's a very famous painting of a, a woman sweeping the front porch, you know, and these are things that had never been depicted before in art, but because of the emphasis on America, it was really, many people saw the American landscape for the first time ever, the Great West, um, and what we had to offer. And it kind of sparks the interest in what there is. And there's this idea of America is the idealism of I can make a difference and we can improve things, but also there's more out there. And much like Mr. Copeland mentioned before, uh, you know, the age of Jackson inspired art, but also had an impact in architecture because we're becoming more democratic in the sense that we're now having universal male suffrage. You're going to see more of the style that you would see in classical Athens. It's a society in which practiced direct democracy like thousands of years ago. Um, this, this will be found in a lot of the columned facades that will grace entryways to public buildings, banks and hotels, and even some homes. But for the most part, because most people are out going to be in rural areas at this time, the simple log cabin will be the staple or the symbolic um, architectural face of America at this time. This is also going to be affected in literature. Um, authors writing fiction will glorify the American frontier and the common man as reflected in Washington Irving's tales. I know some of you probably have heard of the story of Rip Van Winkle, a tale in which uh, a man falls asleep in the sleepy forest upstate New York and then wakes up to be in the future uh, and, and the society has changed. So again, it kind of reflects some of the progressive elements that we find today, as well as the story of the headless horseman and Ichabod Crane, um, where you can kind of check out that tale um, upstate New York uh, in, in a place called Tarrytown or Sleepy Hollow, New York. And later we see that with the tale of Huckleberry Finn in terms of right. connecting people to serious issues that are going on in our society. And, and that's one of the things that uh, you mentioned earlier was you know, in order for people to be more aware of right. things, they have to have them put right in their face. Right now, if you watch a documentary on Netflix, right. that's your delivery system. That's how you're being informed of something going on in society that you may not other be otherwise be aware of. The right. internet, television, that's right. your delivery system. Whereas it, here, it's books. Books, yeah. Right? <laughs> and so one of the important things is authors don't just use their platform of best-selling novels and nonfiction to 
entertain. Promote, yeah, to entertain purely, but also to raise issues of intolerance, raise issues of conformity. Nathaniel Hawthorne in his novel, The Scarlet Letter. And this is a tale of a woman who conceives a child out of wedlock and is completely ostracized by her society and her community. And this addresses these concerns and that when things are wrong, you should speak out. Right. This is that transcendentalist influence on the society right. at this moment, is that um, just because this is the way things always have been, just because the Puritan church says one thing, doesn't mean it's 100% right. And start to question things based on how things make you feel. So when you identify this story, you get a true understanding of what it's like for the person who's being persecuted. And that's where you try to personify the downtrodden and the victimized to get people to kind of empathize with their experience. Yeah, so in, in this type of environment, it's easy to understand why Harry Beecher Stowe will write her most famous book, Uncle Tom's Cabin, which kind of uh, awakens the social consciousness about the evils of, of slavery later on um, when we get close to the Civil War. Yes, and, and so one of the things we see is the changing of the way Americans think and the changing way in which they experience their daily lives, it starts to take action. Right. And we start to see all of a sudden, instead of just having these ideas, people want to reform society. And that's led with the temperance movement. So when we think about temperance, you have to think about uh, the effort to reduce alcohol consumption, in many ways ban it completely. And there was a very high rate of alcohol consumption during this time period. And in many ways, it was kind of prompted by the rise of industrialization and subsequent urbanization. Keep in mind, if you're in rural areas, yeah, you probably have access to whiskey, but if you're living in the factory life, the factory work, um, long hours, uh, meager wages, a lot of these men, working class men that are frustrated will oftentimes use their paycheck uh, and, and drink copious amounts of alcohol at the expense of their, their wives as well as children. Yes. And in 1826, you have a group of Protestant ministers who found the American Temperance Society. So one of the issues is they're trying to take a pledge. Excuse me. They're trying to get alcoholics to take a pledge to create total abstinence throughout this country. And that they're realizing that what they believe is that the society's ills are largely caused by alcohol. And that's the thing that they think... Um, that needs to be addressed. A lot of these Protestant leaders are going to view, they're mostly in the rural areas, they're going to view these urban centers as cesspools of, of moral vice. And it's not just about actual pollution, but the pollution of one's soul. And the temperance movement was a way to rectify that. Yeah. I mean, you have in 1840 a group of alcoholics. They're known as the Washingtonians. And what's unique about them is that the first time that alcoholism is addressed and talked about as a disease rather than simply just actions and consequences that need to be taken. And even still to this day, you have people that have a tough time uh, adjusting to that concept of alcoholism being a disease. So we do have a, you know, two conflicting ideas happen. One thinks it's a, a moral vice. One thinks it's an actual disease. Um, even if you think of uh, today's um, uh, alcoholics, anonymous, but there's a lot of you know, the way in which you get people off is very much through a, almost a religiously ritualized way. And um, drug addiction, yeah, mm -hmm. a lot of people can't um, see it necessarily as something that is addictive or a disease, but more of a personal choice. choice yeah. Well, the choices bring you there, obviously, but right. some people happen to be more predisposed right. to being addicted than right. others. If you and I had uh, consumed the same amount of alcohol, right. one of us might be more likely to be an alcoholic right. based on... Right personal traits. So that's one of the things that this movement grows tremendously. And coincidentally, I don't know why, but German and Irish immigrants strongly oppose this movement. Hmm. Um, and the other thing is factory owners and politicians actually think they support the cause because right. they view it as our workers are alcoholics. They're going to be more productive if they're not drinking. Let's reduce this because they also see how alcohol plays a role in crime and the uh, idea of that being a problem in their cities. And with enough pressure from factory owners as well as these temperance uh, organizations, in 1851, Maine will become the first state to prohibit the manufacture and sale of intoxicating liquors. Uh, Twelve states will shortly follow. So we're slowly seeing on a state level the uh, the movement known as prohibition starting yes. to rear. But the head. issue of prohibition doesn't really come to the forefront right. and doesn't go uh, past on a national level until all the way until 1920. So what, what 
what stopped it. And things are moving so quickly. Well, we have the Civil War. So all these right. social movements that we're going to be talking about right. right now, they all come to a screeching halt where slavery and the Civil War take precedence over everything else and prominence for obvious reasons. And in uh, the Women's Christian Temperance Union after the Civil War will kind of take on the mantle and push for more national prohibition of alcohol, which, as Mr. Coppola mentioned, won't be uh, achieved until uh, the passage of the 18th Amendment in 1919. Yes. So one of the other things is when people start to think about improving society, you also have to think about the people who can't take care of themselves. Right. And so one of the things that is crucial to understand is both the transcendentalists but also these uh, new revival uh, religions they look at trying to reform and take the attention the people who maybe have been cast aside in the past whether it be criminals emotionally disturbed people the poor even the mental um, disabled you know these are things that in the past they were just kind of disregarded and pushed aside and forgotten about and there's a movement to try and change that so we have reformers try to set up these state supported prisons that now can be um, also work as mental hospitals, poor houses. We have all these three things start to come up, whereas rather than just local jails, we want state funding to help alleviate these issues. So um, one of the uh, biggest states that are going to take on this mantle of prison reform is in Pennsylvania, and they're going to build uh, large state-endorsed uh, prisons called penitentiaries to take the place of jails. And what a penitentiary comes from the word penance uh, because it kind of underlies the, the objective of prison reform. The idea is that if someone does a crime, they're obviously supposed to uh, do the time, so to speak, but then there's an element of redemption and forgiveness that they're supposed to undergo within this institution. In other words, prisons are were designed to kind of facilitate the redemption process of the people that kind of made transgressions in society. Um, however, despite this really idealistic goal, there are going to be some inhumane type of policies that will be put in place. Yeah, you can think of it though as a modern day timeout for children. <laughs> you know, right. like, it's like, all right, go over there, reflect on what you've done, and then we'll accept <laughs> we'll you accept back. It, back. it wasn't simply, you've done one thing and you're forever banned. Right. That's important. In today's society, we will talk more later on about how the prison uh, system today really starkly contrasts with its original conception. Yes. And one of the sad things about it is solitary confinement starts during this time period because it's really well-intentioned. They think it's a way in which an individual can be put in a room, given nothing but a Bible, and they can apply their, their ability to reflect on their sins and repent and come out of it as a better person. But we know it now, and the United Nations has defined solitary confinement as psychological torture. So we as human beings, we need the interaction with other people. Right, we're social creatures. Yeah, we're social creatures in a way in which if you're isolated, there's very few things that can do as much damage to you psychologically as that. So this experiment was quickly dropped because there was a high rate of prisoner suicides, unfortunately. But this major dark doctrine begins to form where there's a rigid structure of discipline, and that is what will bring moral reform. That was the goal. That was what they were hoping to get out of this. So when we move on to, from prisons, we also have mental hospitals. And this woman, Dor Dorothea Dix, was really the person who started this. And mentally ill before this were just locked up with criminals. And there were unsanitary conditions. And in many ways, um, they were forgotten. And this is a sad situation that um, nowadays we you know, deal with these people with special needs much differently. But before the 1830s and 40s, they never did that. Now, she's going to launch a countrywide campaign to bring awareness to this to the public. And by 1840, some state legislatures will begin passing bills to improve or build new institutions to meet the needs of the mentally handicapped, albeit these institutions are, again, not going to be the ones up to our modern standards, but it's the beginning to separate criminals from at least the mentally handicapped. Yes. And when we see schools for the blind and deaf persons also emerge. Um, there's an anecdote I love talking about is uh, the Gallaudet University is a school open, a school for the deaf, at, named after its founder, Thomas uh, Gallaudet. And they are the reason why football teams huddle, because uh, it goes back to that they have a football program still to this day, and they're one of the most successful D3 programs, I believe. But all their students are deaf. And in order so that the other schools they played couldn't decipher their signals and sign language, they started to huddle in order to call out the plays because they can't verbalize it, they would use signals. So um, that is the origin of the huddle in the history of American football. 
So uh, that is something that I always thought was, was interesting. So when you see these reformers, you have schools for the blind, people that in the past were thought as unworthy of education realize that they are just as worthy as you and I. And that's why education starts to get reformed as well. Yeah, and the Jacksonian uh, era of democracy, the common man is participating more in politics. Now more than ever, it's really important for the electorate to become at least informed to make well-informed decisions when they go to the polls. It also serves education as a function to develop or train the next generation of industrial class workers. Um, one of the biggest leaders or advocates of the modern public educational system in America is a man named Horace Mann. He's going to be a leading advocate of the common or public school movement. Keep in mind, a lot of the public schools are not going to be formed on a statewide basis. Uh, but he's going to advocate for compulsory attendance for all children, uh, no matter where you are. Remember, if you're in a rural area, if you have six kids, most of them are going to be working on the farm. They're not going to be traveling miles to the nearest schoolyard. There's no need for that. Horseman is going to try to push for schools that will pass laws that will demand them to have some basic forms of education. Uh, he's going to push for a longer school year um, that will go uh, way into the harvest year. Again, this will be in conflict or contrast with some of the interests of the farming class. And he's going to want to increase teacher preparation and teacher programs. It's really a, a way of standardizing the method of instruction right. across the country to try and help make sure everybody is getting a standard or at least a basic understanding mm -hmm. of an education. Now, believe it or not, have. we're in a society where it, public school is like almost a luxury. It's so actually, no, excuse me, not a luxury. It's a, it's a right. Uh, back then, it was seen as a luxury, and there's a huge debate between um, conservatives in the East establishment and people that, like Horseman, wanted to educate the masses. And the biggest complaint was, I don't want to pay my taxes for someone else. Yeah. And this idea of educational opportunity is going to be fought over uh, during the mid-19th century. And this movement also helps to limit the ability of uh, child labor to consistently um, move forward into generations when you have the, the fact that you are required to attend and you can get parents can get in trouble for not sending their children to school that is a method of make, making sure to reduce the amount of child labor that is going on but as you mentioned the concern is you have people not wanting to look out for others it's like why why should I right. care about their education if they're um, never going to use it and stuff like that. I just worry about my children. Well, later on in the in the 20th century, we're going to have a philosopher named John Dewey. He's going to think of education as a necessary uh, function to a uh, formable democracy. You cannot have a good functioning democracy without um, a broad, educated electorate. Yeah. And public schools, ideally, theoretically, are supposed to serve in this in this goal yeah. um, moral education becomes a focal point for public schools as well a man named William Holmes McGuffey will create a series of elementary textbooks that become widely used to teach reading and morality uh, books will extol virtues of hard work punctuality and sobriety going back to that issue with alcoholism in urban sectors of our country um, Catholic immigrants however will begin to establish private schools for their children because they did not want their children to be quote uh, Protestantized. A lot of these moral books will be conceived under the notions of you know uh, sola scriptura, sola gratia, sola fide. It's not going to kind of um, be open or even receptive to Catholic virtues and ideals and this is where we're going to see the formation of Catholic institutions. And that's why you have a lot of Catholic institutions right. in the Northeast where the high population right. of Catholic immigrants right. are. Right. Um, and the higher education is also something. There's a religious enthusiasm for the Second Great Awakening. Now all of a sudden we have a birth of private colleges because it's more than just an effort to um, have a education for the sake of having it, you can use it to do good in society. That's that's the real important role. So one of the things that changes as well is during this time period, you see a shift in the way in which families are structured, but also in which the roles for women start to emerge and they have uh, are given or have to take more of an opportunity for themselves. Uh, in redefining the family, you have to think about the fact that many Americans are living in rural areas, so it's difficult for everyone to go participate in factories. But those that lived in cities, there was a redefining of the family because women were able to work. And industrialization is what really reduced the economic value of children at the same time. So you have women participating in factories such as the Lowell girls we read about in the, our document. Um, and you see women now making the decision that 
having more children is actually going to be more of an economic burden than right. it would be an assistance on the farm. Um, so while working class women are participating more than ever before uh, in their economic opportunities to help their families survive and make it, at the same time you have upper and middle class women who have more free time because it would be unwomanlike or would not reflect well on their husband if they went into the factory. So many of them are spending their time with charitable organizations or some of these social movements that we've already talked about, whether it be the temperance movement or later on the anti-slavery movement. But coincidentally, at this exact moment where women are all of a sudden having more of a pro high profile in society or speaking out or talking about the ills and the problems, the things they want improved, you start to see this thing known as the cult of domesticity, which is an effort to try and have more traditional families be the ideal American family. Right, and you know it kind of has its its it kind of expresses or manifests itself um, indifferently in rural and urban areas. In traditional farm families, men are going to be the moral fiber of the family. However, because of the way to survive on the farm, women, believe it or not, are actually going to have greater um, independence and autonomy because it is of necessity. Right? They they the men have to be dependent on women and their respective children in order to survive and continue to grow crops. Uh, in industrial areas, however, despite the fact that some middle class women were able to kind of participate in the political and social sphere, a lot of them are going to be pressured uh, to be moral leaders that will take charge of children within the household. And the reason why is that uh, society is going to separate um, the public sphere from the domestic sphere. Men were in charge of working outside the home, the public sphere, for a wage. Um, and women are supposed to be within the domestic sphere and they're going to have a duty and their essential duty is to continue the morality uh, of, of, of the consciousness of the educated republic through their children. So this in many ways serves as a justification to keep these women within the spheres of their home because the public sphere is too, uh, it's too unworthy for them. It will it, it, taint their sen yes. sensibilities, it will stain uh, the the way that they look at the world, and we need to keep women morally pure in order for them to teach morally pure children. Their primary role in the, our society, to the greatest influence they can have on our society, is raise very well-adjusted children and good citizens. What is interesting is the women that are going to participate and break out of this mold of domesticity are the women that are most likely not going to marry, be widowed, or not have children. And we are beginning to see women that are politically active tend to not be within the traditional family structures and they're going to face a lot of critical uh, ire and, and feedback for that. They're not going to be well respected among the male dominated society yeah. because they're not doing what is their duty to do which is to raise children. So there's going to be tensions between these early suffragettes and the, the mainstream society that they're participating in. One of the most famous cartoons and you'll see it in our document book is A Woman's Place is in the Home. And that was the emphasis, is that you're not a true woman unless you're a mother. You're not a true woman unless you're raising a family. And that was a way to undercut the arguments of these women. So when we move on to women's rights, what's interesting is even within the movements that they're working together with other men to do things, like this anti-slavery movement that emerges, women start to realize even the men that are standing side by side with them right. don't view them as equals. So men are taking the leadership roles. They're the ones shaping policy, making all the major decisions. The women are getting coffee. The women are getting papers, doing simple things, uh, menial work. And the earliest people that were objecting or kind of criti critical of this dynamic were the Grimsky sisters. Sarah and Angelina are going to object to male opposition to their anti-slavery activities, um, and they're going to try to push for a more um, active role within this movement. Uh, Lucretia Mott and Elizabeth Cady Stanton will take it a step further, and they're going to move away from the anti-slavery movement and begin to campaign specifically for women's political rights after they will be barred from speaking at an anti-slavery convention. Yeah, you have both of these women um, are very passionate about the idea of anti-slavery. And this is really the, the reason why you know the social reform movements of women's rights and anti-slavery are always parallel is because they start together. And Lucretia Mott and Kate, Elizabeth Cady Stanton travel all the way to Paris to try and speak at a, a worldwide convention to end slavery 
and they're barred from entering simply because they're women. They're, they're treated as if they were not important and irrelevant. So they bring that back home to them, and shortly after this, they create what is known as Seneca Falls Convention. And the reason why this is important is because they invite many of the other leading feminists at this time to Seneca Falls, New York, and it's the first convention of women's rights in American history. They go th carefully through a conversation with all the leading members to come up with a list or a issuing of a declaration of sentiments, things that they believe need to improve for the lives of women to improve. And, and much like how the Declaration of Independence was formed by white upper-class men complaining about the injustices of England, these women within the Seneca Falls Convention will mostly be upper-class white women. Mm -hmm. And that's something that's interesting within social movements. We have to keep in mind that even within social movements, as Mr. Copeland mentioned before, there's also going to be some sort of um, deference or distinctions between class as well as race. Yeah. However, eventually, Staten will later join with Susan B. Anthony in campaigning for equal voting, legal, and property rights for all women. But, uh, but for the most part, this movement will chiefly be for and by white middle-class women. Yeah, and the women to stand up and start to speak and actually be heard, it, it takes those women to say, Correct. unfortunately, during this time, any of the lower working class women don't have the time to think about these other fact, issues. They're working. They're working in factories. They're trying to survive. So the fact that these women uh, might have a little bit more of a platform, but their social status and their economic status definitely play into that. So um, similar to what we mentioned earlier, at the time of the 1850s, everything comes to a stop when the issue of slavery takes over as the primary concern in America, which leads to um, the Civil War. And that's why the anti-slavery movement is so crucial to understanding the, the center, excuse me, the middle of the 18th century in America. So the second awakening, we know that this led many Christians to view slavery as a sin, something that shouldn't happen. But would it move them to take action? Would they be willing to risk social uh, status and their jobs or their standing amongst their peers to speak out against something that most of America accepted as it was just the way it was. And think of it like today. I mean, how many of us at the kitchen table identify things that are problematic in our society, but we're not going to take active steps to do anything about it. So the opponents of slavery will vary in degree from moderates, uh, people that talk in the kitchen and use rhetoric and, and condemn it and do nothing about it, to radicals on how to solve this issue. The first step to solving this issue with slavery was, well, why don't we just send them away, which was very far uh, nearsighted, but a lot of Americans are going to say, well, if we got them from Africa, it may seem as most logical and reasonable to send them back to Africa. But and the underlying argument in that is that whites and blacks could never no, exist. Right, right. It was a belief in superiority, but uh, also the idea of we wouldn't want them in our society anyway, so let's move them along. So in 1870, they started, 17, excuse me, the American Colonization Society, they start to try transporting free slaves to an African colony. Hey, we'll give you your own land. And that's known as Liberia. Um, and that is, you know, short for liberty. So in 1822 is when they finally established that settlement. Um, it grew modestly, and the slave population in America grew tremendously. So you have, between 1820 and 1860, only 12,000 blacks settled in the Liberia uh, settlement, whereas the population of, of African slaves here in America grew to 2.5 million. So while colonization may have seemed like a good idea on paper, it did not kind of solve or address the issues with the growing population of slavery. Uh, remember, keep in mind, gradualism was the popular ideology in the 1790s, mm -hmm. Once the cotton gin was formed, once slavery was here to stay with the Missouri Compromise and the expansion out west, people are going to look to other areas on how to deal with this issue. So eventually we're going to have um, a movement that we now know as full-scale abolition. Um, and the uh, abolitionist movement will be spearheaded by uh, white abolitionists as well as black abolitionists. And the chief white abolitionist will be a man named William Lloyd Garrison, who will found with his friends in 1833 the American Anti-Slavery Society. It will be an organization which will seek to kind of eradicate abolitionism uh, and ab uh, slavery in all its forms. And he will do this through the expression of his newspaper, The Liberator. 
Yeah, the Liberator starts only a few years earlier, and this is a way to kind of get the noise, get the, excuse me, get the message out to the American public, because much of the North, as you said, they're living their lives. If they don't hear about the atrocities of the, of the Southern treatment of the slaves, how can they ever connect with it? Um, so this really marks the beginning of that radical abolitionist movement you mentioned, but the reason why he was considered radical was because he advocated the abolition of slavery in every state and territory without compensation. So people that were more moderate were saying, well, obviously they're your property. Right. We would have to compensate you for right. them. You know, we're basically strike, creating a law which robs you of your property. Right. So therefore, something needs to be done. Right. You need to be compensated at a certain level. Garrison rejects that, reject that completely. And there were a lot of people who sided with him. But others that were a little bit more cautious that thought it would be a little bit too much to ask, saying, well, wait, why don't we just buy off the Southern Plantation or we'll give them the money, maybe that will work. And Garrison wasn't afraid to kind of like uh, modify his tone. Most of the time in his publications were radical and theatric, and the organization was prone to such dr like really, really, you know, uh, dramatic forms to get their point across. For instance, they're going to condemn and burn the cop a copy of the Constitution in front of people, and they're going to say that it is a pro-slavery document. And while certainly the Constitution is a pro-slavery document, if you recall the Three-Fifths Compromise, they did nothing to solve this I issue, um, you know, this is perhaps not the most pragmatic way to kind of get this point across. In, in fact, it is designed to inflame tensions between these two groups rather than solve it. If you're going to do something controversial, you have to make the decision, is it going to help or hurt the movement? And burning the Constitution, even though technically they were true in what they were saying, didn't bring any people to their sides that would have otherwise not have been with them already. So if you're trying to build a movement, try to connect with the people that are standing on the sidelines, not right. just inflame the people that are against you. No pun intended. Yes. And the point is that the reason why we study him is that he's going to be he's going to be one of the contributing factors to the way the Southerners are going to view Northerners wholesale. While Northerners, most of them are really not going to have a strong opinion on the institution of slavery, people like William Lloyd Garrison is going to give the impression yeah. that a lot of people, especially up in the Puritanical New England North that are very radical liberal yeah. and, and don't really care about law and order and, and the laws that we, we and, passed. And perception can be reality. Right. So if I have no interaction with any Northerner, if I have no interaction right. with any Southerner, the stories are believed to general, generalize an entire group of people. So we see a, a, a new political party emerge, the Liberty Party. And eventually, um, they're started with their ideas, the radical ideas that Garrison had. But uh, they eventually get... Um, basically swallowed up into a, major, a larger party later on. But they did have a presidential candidate in 1840 and 1844 named James Burney. Um, but when we move on to black abolitionists, you know, many of them are escaped slaves themselves or free blacks their entire lives that are outspoken at talking about the uh, cruel treatment of slavery uh, and the way in which Southerners are abusing the system and to personify, to create empathy amongst Northerners to have them take action. So Frederick Douglass is a runaway slave himself and one of the most, I think, impressive human beings we've ever had in our country's history because he taught himself to how to read and write, was a runaway slave. He started an anti-slavery journal known as the North Star, which became incredibly popular. Um, and was a huge force along with the Liberator in this movement. But to contrast it with the white abolitionist William Lloyd Garrison's publication, The Liberator, Frederick Doug Douglass had to be more nuanced and be very careful with his language to not alienate himself from the white audiences he wished to inspire to donate to this cause. He had so, more at risk. Right, he had more at risk to alienate himself. So, which which is really interesting for a lot of you guys that you don't understand is that black abolitionists had to kind of kind of balance themselves on a tightrope more so than white abolitionists who could enjoy the luxury of being radical with their rhetoric and being super uh, emotionally charged. Frederick Douglass, by comparison, had to be more reserved and come across as non-threatening to a white audience because even within the abolitionist movement, there were still people that really were scared and, and viewed black people to be inferior, to be savage. Yes. And he was very, very cognizant of that. So it is really a testament to him and the way he masterfully writes, the diction in which he writes his tale is designed to appease and appeal to a white audience. Yeah, he hones his message to really undercut a lot of the assumptions that people have of right. him and his people. Right. And as you mentioned, he had to be very, very careful with his words because um, when he would go to certain places in public squares to have debates and speak, you know, his life was at risk. 
William Lloyd Garrison didn't have that thought in his mind. Right. So he could be a little bit more right. aggressive with his right. tone and aggressive with his speech. So we all know that some of the most famous names, Harriet Tubman, Sojourner Truth, but David Riggles and William Still are also names that we need to know that organized the effort to assist fugitive slaves and has helped them escape to the free territories in the North or even Canada known as the Underground Railroad. Sojourner Truth and Harriet Tubman are incredibly outspoken women, abolition, black abolitionists that fight for not just um, freedom, but later on the right to vote. So if we recognize that abolitionism is a radical movement in of itself, and there are a lot of people using radical words or ideologies, it's only a matter of time until someone will be inspired by these words and ideas and put it into action. And a lot of these abolitionists are going to take a violent turn and say, you know what, all this talking, all this arguing, debating is not going to solve anything. And they're going to be very much influenced in trying to actually overthrow the institution of slavery. So people like David Walker and Henry Highland Garnett are going to advocate a more radical solution to ending slavery because other types or other alternatives are just not working. Slaves should take action and start to revolt against their owners. This is going to have a tremendous impact, again, on the way the South is going to perceive the Northerners, and which will contribute mainly to the tensions that will lead up to the Civil War. Yeah, and that's their argument, is that that's how slaves are going to take action and start this revolt. That's the only way to solve this problem. Well, there were examples of rebellions. We read about the Stono Rebellion earlier this year, but in 1831, we have one of the most uh, successful in terms of the um, lives lost in this rebellion was Nat Turner's rebellion in South Carolina and 55 white people were killed and what it did was really affirm the fears of abolitioners they said see what these northerners are, are, are doing they're creating this message they're the ones that we have to worry about they're undermining our authority they're not believing in the rule of law as you mentioned before but what it really did was it scared any people who would have been borderline and realized that yes slavery is really terrible it ended that southern participation in that movement because they saw that this uh, gave credence to the savagery and what could happen. And it's hard to say that these violent actions were necessarily wrong. And I know it's really challenging to say that, but think of it this way. Remember John Locke. John Locke argues that a people have the right to overthrow an unjust government that does not protect their life, liberty, and property. Well, from the standpoint of people in chains, black people in chains, don't they have the right by any means necessary? to overthrow this tyranny that we call slavery. You know, we, we, we tend to make opinions based on the perspectives that we have. Well, most of us in, on this class are law-abiding citizens that would most likely be on the other side of this in history. So I need you to kind of challenge yourselves in how you even perceive these events because we tend to look at them as bad events. And I'm not saying that they're not bad events. I'm just telling you to look at it from multiple angles and see the justification as to why one would be moved to violence. Because if we can condone the violence of the American Revolution, it makes a lot more sense to understand in that context how black people would try to rise up or even white abolitionists would try to inspire radical violence. Yeah, what would you be willing to do if you were in a position of servitude to break free? You know, I mean, that's right. really what it is. That's like, what comes down to, yeah. A human being yearns to, break, to be free. If our whole country is about freedom, right. how can you really question the fact that someone in a slave uh, uh, plantation right. is going to eventually try and rebel and fight back? So Nat Turner's Rebellion is among the most successful. That's why we know about it to this day. There's, I'm sure there's thousands of other oh, small yeah, uprisings that we'll never know about. Right. But this is the one that got headlines. And this uh, slave named Nat Turner was taught how to read by his slave owners at a very young age, and he was the one who went around and became a preacher that tried to connect with the local plantations, and they started to have a plan. And then, as we saw in the Stone Rebellion, you start to see a crackdown on the treatment of slaves and their freedom and their ability to associate in public with one another without white people present after this. And as many people become more socially aware of the ills of slavery, the, the, the more southern slave owners will clutch on to the institution of slavery and there'll be more of something to defend so the, the more that these incidents happen whether rhetorical or actual um, southerners are going to see this as a threat to their way of life and this is going to be one of the founding elements of the civil war that we'll discuss on in later audio lectures all right that concludes period four dash three notes we'll see you next time take care